You're listening to Argy's Poetry Pickle Jar. Hello and welcome to Argy's Poetry Pickle Jar, the only place where we pickle the poems we know you'll love. Each week, we invite a published poet to talk us through a poem they truly love. And each week, we explain to you why they love it. We'll wrestle with it, grapple with it, pop it open so by the end of the 15 minutes you will hopefully learn to love it too. This week I have a baby who's teething and I also have a cold so thus it sounds like some sort of instrument is wedged inside of my nose. But don't fear because I am joined by someone very special, someone I had not heard of three weeks ago. That's not because he wasn't writing, it's because I need award ceremonies to tell me what to read. In 2012, his debut poetry collection, Absence Has a Weight of Its Own, was published by Nine Arches Press. He was named one of Huffington Post's top five British poets to watch in 2015. Uh, That year was the year of his second book, The Terrible, uh, which was released. And he'd also recently co-edited the first major UK disability poetry anthology, Stares and Whispers. But the reason why I finally heard of him was his third collection, Single Window, uh, which is also published through Nine Arches Press. Uh, and that book is a long form poem that I recommend really highly. Uh, spruced with images, uh, this guy captures what it is to be stuck indoors during a lockdown with nothing but a sofa, a window, and perhaps a bag of weed. The book has been nominated for the T.S. Eliot Prize, and I'm absolutely honoured to have him here today. It's Daniel Sluman. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm cold this morning, but I'm good. It feels it feels like winter, doesn't it? So my ignorance of not hearing about your work, I don't know what that's down to. But one thing I wanted to ask was, how has it been, like, finding out the T.S. Eliot thing? And it's like, for people that don't know the T.S. Eliot, I think it's fair to say it's kind of like the Oscars of the poetry world. How did you feel about that? I don't think I have any feelings about it yet, because I think it's still a great big joke that's going to be kind of, like all set up for me on the day when everyone's like haha we got you um <laughs> just just shitting with you no um i i i really haven't processed it yet and i probably won't do until i'm like 50 or 60 years old i mean you took a lot of risk in that book um i don't know whether your other work is long form but that book is uh, quite a long form poem uh to describe to people who don't know and it's also got photographs in it and it's capturing a very specific time, so it's very autobiographical in many ways. And it's connecting with a really specific time in history. Now, when you look back, do you uh, look at that with what emotions do you get when you read back the work? Well, some of some of the most of the work there was written at least in some form before COVID happened. So you had this this physical isolation um because of my and my wife's disabilities but then when the the covid aspect came on top of that i think maybe um it kind of it reinforced that that feeling of kind of being alone and being isolated and that everyone can kind of um have some kind of empathy with that now to some extent but um but yeah the the previous books are all just like normal titled poems that are about different things 
um, like a normal collection of poetry. This is the first book that's um, different that I've done differently than that. And it's the first book I've used pictures, which is not something I'm massively confident about normally. So it was kind of a risk, yeah. Um, but then again, the flip side of that is I've been privileged enough to be published twice before that and privileged enough to have an amazing relationship with my publishers. And the more I speak to other writers, the more I realize that I'm incredibly lucky to have um, an editor and a publisher who I've done three books with. She calls me out on my shit better than anyone else, which you really need in an editor. And she also knows when I'm moving into places that, that might be new and might be interesting. Um, the more and more I speak to a lot of peers and friends around me, some of them are like, oh yeah, we, we sent the book off and like we got a few kind of line edits, but that was it. And that's that's not for me. That's I'm I'm I want a relationship with a publisher where they are invested in the work and whatever it takes to make that book the best it can be is kind of done. And we're speaking today about a really exciting poem. I'm going to ask you to read the poem first, and then we'll chat about why you chose it. I think this was published in 1966. This is The Lifeguard by James Dickey. In a stable of boats, I lie still, from all sleeping children hidden. The leap of a fish from its shadow makes the whole lake instantly tremble. With my foot on the water, I feel the moon outside take on the utmost of its power. I rise and go out through the boats. I set my broad soul upon silver, on the skin of the sky, on the moonlight, stepping outward from earth onto water in quest of the miracle this village of children believed that I could perform as I dived for one who had sunk from my sight. I saw his cropped haircut go under. I leapt and my steep body flashed once in the sun. Dark drew all the light from my eyes. Like a man who explores his death by the pull of his slow moving shoulders, I hung head down in the cold, wide eyed, contained and alone among the weeds and my fingertips turned into stone from clutching immovable blackness. Time after time I leapt upwards, exploding in breath, and fell, black, fell back from the change in the children's faces at my defeat. Beneath them I swam to the boathouse with only my life in my arms, to wait for the lake to shine back at the risen moon with such power that my steps on the light of the ripples might be sustained. Beneath me is nothing but brightness, like the ghost of a snowfield in summer. As I move toward the centre of the lake, which is also the centre of the moon, I'm thinking of how I may be the saviour of one who has already died in my care. The dark trees fade from around me, the moon's dust hovers together. I call softly out, and the child's voice answers through blinding water. Patiently, slowly he rises, dilating to break the surface of stone with his forehead. He is one I do not remember having ever seen in my life. The ground I stand on is trembling upon his smile, 
I wash the black mud from my hands. On a light given off by the grave, I kneel in the quick of the moon at the heart of a distant forest and hold in my arms a child of water, water, water. Massive. Thank you so much. That was such a great reading, but also such a wonderful uh, example of clarity and narrative storytelling, uh, but also so much lyrical in it. Um, tell us a bit about why you were inspired to bring this in. I looked at my book bookshelf and I thought, I have to bring in a James Dickey poem because although he is a famous poet and he's probably more famous for Deliverance, the book and the resulting film um, that was out in the 70s or 80s, um, he's not a very fashionable poet. Considering it's from 1966, I think it's it's just a really good example of something that Dickie had that I don't find in a lot of other poets nowadays. And that's this kind of magical realism, this presence, this ability to mix the mythic and the real in a, in a way that is kind of confounding. But at the same time, like you say, there's a clarity, there's a precision of language there that um, I'm immediately, I've always been drawn to. Give us some examples of the mixing of the realistic and the magical, and then also perhaps, yeah, some of the examples of the clarity. On, on the, the kind of the, the layer of the onion that's closest to the surface in this poem is that we have a, a lifeguard who, and I only know this context because I, I listened to a 1966 recording from the Library of Congress earlier to make sure I, I, I got a bit of backstory, but about a lifeguard at kind of like a summer camp for kids. One of the children there has died in his care. And that that is the layer of the of the poem that's closest to the surface. But at the same time, the lake where he is is replaced by the moon at some points. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Also by the fact that he talks about walking on water and there is this kind of um implication that you get with a lot of Dickie poems that he was brought up in with kind of a uh, kind of Christian mythical background. And you see that in the poem, there are kind of some real kind of Christ-like elements about sacrifice. And the savior, he, he thinks him, he wants to be the savior, the savior of one. But that line is so interesting because there's a line break. It's like, I am thinking of how I may be the savior of one who has already died in my care. Yeah. And the second, like I've obviously read this before the meeting and I was, and I was proper like, yeah, the kid dies. But the second, when you read it there, I was like, oh, does the kid die? Because the last two um, stanzas are, the ground I stand on is trembling upon his smile. And this, and he's calling to the child and the child's voices answer, un- answers through blinding water, patiently, slowly. Yeah, I think if he, if he ends it before that, and it's just like, this happened, fair enough. But then th- these extra three stanzas, for me, I, I think from the very start, he's thinking about what's happened, about this this child who's died. And in the end, when he's talking about the child actually coming up, I think we start moving the poem from a very literal kind of explanation of what's happened to this poem almost being an allegory mm. or an extended metaphor. And Part of that is this issue of water, um, the idea of the forest, which is mentioned at one point, and the moon. These are all things we kind of associate with the subconscious or with the unconscious in us. Mm -hmm. And a part of 
of my reading of the poem is that it's almost like um, an allegory for growing up and for becoming an adult and for leaving that aspect of the kind of child consciousness and the mm. subconsciousness kind of and leaving that and kind of growing up yeah i get you or, or, or just the metaphor maybe it didn't even happen maybe it's just a dream or, or an imagination type thing mm. but this idea that the child represents um when we're most in contact with those unconscious and subconscious ideas that as we get older we seem to move further and further away from and closer to ideas that are much more um, materialistic and less abstract. So that's like, I like to be able to hold three or four different readings of a poem at, at once. And mm. that's one of them, I feel. I think also with this, it's an amazing thing of, like you said, running within this sort of like dreamlike state, the reality, but also the narrative of a story, but then so much lyrical content, which is not, that contemporary right now and also he's on the nose quite a lot i mean it is 1966 i didn't know it was so long ago this could be from any time it's one of yeah. those timeless things but yeah some so much of the description is beautiful even in this first stanza in a stable of boats i lie still from all sleeping children hidden the leaps of a fish from its shadow makes the whole lake instantly tremble it's actually so exceptionally beautiful and there's there's nothing in there that dates it to a very particular date and time at all as well like you say it could be written it could be written now but the thing that you get with with dicky and you'll have it with some other poems as well like his more famous poems is there's a a kind of unbelievableness about what he writes about there's there's a poem that's about a half sheep half human um child that's born very briefly before it dies and about what it sees and how it sees the world being um half animal half human like i said he isn't a very fashionable poet and it turns out he was really quite a bit of a dick as well oh um, wow the pun on his name as well yeah yeah there's <laughs> there's a great biography out there um that really talks about his um need throughout most of his life to kind of big up himself and um exaggerate his achievements and his past but um wow that's a gr that's great knowledge i never knew that at all i mean does it matter i'm well there's you know there's lots of debates i'm sure about how much how much these things matter um but when when you read the words the words are pretty incredible nice to talk to you man have a really good uh christmas and new year you too. Thanks ever so much. The Lifeguard by James Dickey In a stable of boats I lie still From all sleeping children hidden The leap of a fish from its shadow Makes the whole lake instantly tremble With my foot on the water I feel the moon outside take on the utmost of its power. I rise and go out through the boats. I set my broad soul upon silver, on the skin of the sky, on the moonlight, stepping outward from earth onto water in quest of the miracle. This village of children believed that I could perform as I dived for one who had sunk from my sight. 
I saw his cropped haircut go under. I leapt and my steep body flashed once in the sun. Dark drew all the light from my eyes like a man who explores his death. By the pull of his slow-moving shoulders, I hung head down in the cold, wide-eyed, contained and alone among the weeds. And my fingertips turned into stone from clutching immovable blackness. Time after time, I leapt upward, exploding in breath, and fell back from the change in the children's faces at my defeat. Beneath them I swam to the boathouse with only my life in my arms to wait for the lake to shine back at the risen moon with such power that my steps on the light of the ripples might be sustained. Beneath me is nothing but brightness, like the ghost of a snowfield in summer as I move toward the centre of the lake which is also the centre of the moon. I am thinking of how I may be the saviour of one who has already died in my care. The dark trees fade from around me, the moon's dust hovers together. I call softly out and the child's voice answers through blinding water. Patiently, slowly, he rises dilating to break the surface of stone with his forehead. He is one I do not remember having ever seen in his life. The ground I stand on is trembling upon his smile. I washed the black mud from my hands on a light given off by the grey wave. I kneel in the quick of the moon at the heart of a distant forest and hold in my arms a child of water, water, water.